You can join me in opening your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, and we are in chapter 14 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one under a seat nearby, and our reading is on page 851 in those Bibles. So we're nearing the end of our series in the Gospel of Mark, and we usually give focused attention to Jesus' arrest, His trials, His crucifixion, His resurrection around Good Friday and Easter. So we're on the other side of the calendar here, focusing on this in October, but this is an opportunity for us to give fresh attention to these, perhaps out of the time frame that we usually give this kind of extended focus. So this morning we're looking at the stories that lead up to and toward Jesus' crucifixion. We're not yet to the cross. Everything is heading there, and on the way, we see a stark contrast, a contrast between Jesus and literally everybody else. We've had a terrible hurricane sweep across several states this past week, and that image has come to mind uh, as I think about this text, because here we have Jesus in the eye of a hurricane. Everything is swirling around Him, betrayal by a disciple, abandonment by friends, denial by one of his closest friends, false accusations and slander, an unjust trial, physical abuse. It's all swirling around him, and he's in the middle, faithful and steadfast. And in the middle of this hurricane, he makes one statement. He proclaims his identity clearer than we've ever heard him Say it before in the Gospel of Mark. All through his life and ministry, he has been a bit cryptic or private about his true identity. It's been somewhat of a secret, telling people not to spread it as they get indicators of who he is. And here he is at a trial, as though drugged by wolves into their lair, and he announces in the middle of this who he is. It will lead to his death but ultimately to his victory. So at the heart of the story we're about to read here is Jesus. It's a contrast between humanity's failure and his faithfulness, humanity's injustice and his innocence. In the end, we see our deep need in his great grace. So let's read Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 43, and we'll be reading all the way to the end of the chapter, so a bit longer this morning. This is God's very word to us living and active by the power of the Spirit, even as we read right now. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Verse 53, and they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. 
And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the, in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And Peter was below in the courtyard one, with one of the servant girls, or one of the servant girls, the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the infinite wisdom that you have and you express through your scriptures. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit's power, we would have the eyes of our heart open to behold your glory in Jesus, and that we'd be changed as a result of the sight. Amen. Well, we see Jesus faithfully here in the middle or the eye of this hurricane of sin and failure all around him. So this text is here for, uh, for us to see ourselves more clearly and to see Jesus also more clearly. We see ourselves in this failure all around him, and we see Jesus as our Savior here. So we'll walk through the three major movements of this text together. So we see the arrest, and then the trial, and then the denial, and then we'll consider how to respond. So first, the arrest. So this is Thursday night, and it's getting late. Jesus and his disciples ate the Last Supper together already. Then they went to a grove of olive trees called Gethsemane, and it was there that Jesus paused. We saw last week, he hesitated. His soul became a storm within him. He was physically collapsed at the thought of what was drawing near. It was the prospect of God's wrath that would be poured out on him at the cross. He was about to drink the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs so that we could drink the cup of his blessing forever. And he staggered at the thought of it, but then he re-embraced his calling. And he got up and he said, it's time. And so now that the storm has calmed in his own soul, 
a storm breaks out all around him. Judas came with armed soldiers and Jewish leaders. Look at the treachery of this moment in verse 44. Judas is already introduced here by Mark as one of the twelve, just to draw attention again that he was one of the close disciples. Now verse 44, now the betrayer, that's how he's called now, had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. So in that culture, kisses of greeting were common, uh, but they were still intimate. So Jesus uses a gesture of friendship as the sign of this betrayal. And then in the midst of all of this, Jesus is here calm and resolved. So why? We hear at the end of verse 49, see what Jesus says there? He says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. In other words, you have no reason to arrest me. You certainly don't need to come at me with clubs and swords, but let's go because this has been written ahead of time and there's scripture to fulfill. I doubt that Jesus had just a couple scattered predictions in his mind here when he said that. He's been repeatedly echoing and fulfilling whole swaths of patterns and predictions from the Old Testament scriptures. Already that evening, Jesus referred in significant ways to the book of Exodus and Psalms and Zechariah and Isaiah. So he's not fulfilling just a scattered prediction here and there. He's bringing the whole story of the Bible, the whole story of history to its climax and its appointed end. He's more than just a man of destiny, destiny here. He is the one whom all the scriptures spoke about, and he's come to do that which they anticipated. So the Old Testament, you can think of like an arrow, and its tip is resting right on Jesus, pointing ahead to the events that are about to unfold before him. So he complies with the arrest, and then all his disciples run away. But that too is a fulfillment of scripture, because Jesus not only said it would happen just hours before at dinner, when he did say that they would fall away, he quoted from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, which said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And he said, that's why you're going to fall away. And just as Brad said earlier, this isn't just a, he just had a sense of what was about to happen and he's good at kind of reading the leaves. No, he knew the scriptures and the scriptures said, you strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. He's about to be struck. And so the sheep are scattering. And we have this odd moment of this naked guy running away. <laughs> Who is that? We don't know. We know that Mark is writing this, and he probably lived in Jerusalem at the time, and he would have been a young man at the time, so some scholars speculate that maybe this was Mark writing himself into the story. Possible, who knows? But what is this doing here? Well, think about it. The disciples have all just melted away in fear, but there's a young man following Jesus with noble courage. I mean, Jesus had other disciples more than the 12, right? So here's a young man, intrigued by Jesus, following Jesus, courage in the middle of the night. And verse 51, he has noble courage, but only to a point. The young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So he's fleeing like the disciples. So we see some nobility and honor in this man, but running away naked is most likely a picture of shame as well. And so here he is then. Like the disciples, everyone's running away. Everyone has left him. 
Look at the contrast then. Judas betrays him. The crowds arrest him. The disciples abandon him. A young man runs away in shame. And here's Jesus standing alone in faithfulness. So second, the trial. So here, the faithfulness of Jesus is magnified by this just unhinged chaos and fury around him. They lead Jesus about a mile away to the high priest. So now all the leaders of Israel are there. The scribes, the chief priests, the elders, Roman soldiers are with them, and now the high priest. So here Jesus is in the middle of the night, brought to the authorities. We should hear the ominous tones in the background here. It's like some kind of mafia movement movie where an innocent man is brought in the middle of a night to a secret meeting with corrupt leaders. You have the police chief, the city mayor, the state governor, all their armed cronies. This is not going to go well. And they know how to have a just trial. They know how to do this in fairness. They have elaborate rules on the books for this kind of thing. But they know that won't work because they know Jesus has done nothing wrong. There's not a whiff of wrong in him. So they start their proceeding. They call the witnesses to testify against him, the kind of witnesses that would be willing to be recruited for a middle-of-the-night sham trial. But they have nothing but obvious lies and contradictions to say. This is verses 55 to 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not even agree. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I'll build another, not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony didn't agree. So, the leaders already predicted the outcome that they need, right? They're going to put him to death. They just need to manufacture a case to push this through their legal process, at least in some form. But they can't even do that. The best they can do is get a misquote of Jesus about the temple. And people are even quoting it wrong, not even agreeing with one another. And then we come to the climax of this story. If you've been with us through the series of the Gospel of Mark, you've noticed something odd. Jesus has keep, kept his identity secret. People slowly come to learn who he really is. But nearly every time people make the claim through the gospel, he tells them not to spread the news to anyone. When demons declare his identity, he hushes them. There's been a few key moments throughout the gospel. We have Jesus at his baptism and the Father speaks to him, affirming his identity, but others don't hear it. Then Jesus takes just a few of his disciples up a mountain where he's transfigured in radiant glory and the Father again speaks. But just to those few, and Jesus tells them on the way down, don't tell anyone until I'm risen from the dead, which they're even confused about. And now we have this moment here where everything changes. The high priest stands up and asks Jesus if he has anything to say about these false witnesses and claims. Jesus is silent, likely fulfilling ancient prophecy of the suffering servant who's silent like a lamb led to the slaughter. But then he's asked directly, are you the Christ? the Son of the Blessed. How does Jesus respond? Well, verse 62 is this brilliant light that bursts in the middle of this darkness. He said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, that may not 
be immediately clear to us. If we said in some public space that this is who we think Jesus is, we think that he is the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven, people would be relatively confused. But, I mean, what what does he mean? The high priest, though, hears this and understands exactly what he's saying. Do you see how he responds? He tears his robe and he says, now we've heard enough. Let's kill him. So what did Jesus say? What did he mean by all of this? Well, Jesus is making his classic move here. He subtly quotes a new, a, just many Old Testament texts about him. Jesus is always doing this. Have you, noticed, have you noticed this? Just subtle echoes, allusion, a word here, a phrase here, just pulling from well-known texts from the Old Testament into this collage to show who he is because he doesn't just fulfill one text here and there. All the scriptures are about him. And so he regularly quotes and alludes to it to just demonstrate that that's the case and to make the point about himself. So he does that again here. He brings texts together and he says they're all coming true in him. So he grabs three texts that each potentially could be on their own explosive in that room. But like a chemist, he grabs all three, he pours them together and it creates this explosion in front of him. So these three texts give us a powerful and clear understanding of who Jesus is is. And if we want to understand what Jesus is saying, we need to see what he means from the Old Testament. We'll see that he is forcing everyone's hand there. They have to decide. Once he says this, they have to decide. They either kill him or they worship him. So here's the three well-known texts and promises. The first is 2 Samuel 7. The high priest asks if he is the Christ or Messiah, the coming king, the son of the blessed. So This is a reference to this son of David who would come, this this man from David's line who would then be a king and rule as a king and rule Israel and the nations. He would be in a father-son relationship with God. And Jesus says, yes, I am the Christ. I am the one that 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2 and all these other texts said would come. The second text is Daniel 7 seems to be one of Jesus' favorites. He calls himself the Son of Man, which is a reference to that text, and then he says, you will see him coming with the clouds of heaven. So we've seen Jesus refer to this very sentence a number of times. It's a vision of God referred to as the Ancient of Days, and God is seated on his throne. And then one comes, Daniel 7 says, like a Son of Man, And he comes in the clouds, but not comes this way, but goes with the clouds to God, the Father. And he goes with the clouds to receive his authority over all the nations, nations like Rome, the Roman Empire, all the peoples of the world. He's given authority. And so he'll be the king over all leaders, including the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, including the Roman soldiers who take their cues from the city of Rome. So the third text is Psalm 110. Maybe a little bit less well-known to us, but it wouldn't have been then. Jesus said that he will be seated at the right hand of power. So that's from Psalm 110. In that psalm, David is recounting something that he heard God the Father say to this coming king from his line. 
It's very prophetic and peculiar, but David is Israel's king, and he says that someone's going to come from his line who will be greater than him. I mean, the promise of a son of David started to be developed as God revealed more, and we realize this is more than just a son of David. This is someone who's going to be greater than David, and this is going to be a king who's going to rule forever. So David's Israel's king. He knows a greater king is coming, and this king will be his own Lord, whom he as the king of Israel submits to, and he heard God say something to his Lord, the future king. Here's what he heard God say to this future king, his own Lord. He said, I heard God say to my Lord, sit at my right hand, which is the place of highest authority. So here's Psalm 110 verse 1 directly. The Lord or Yahweh God says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Jesus is saying, that's me and my enemies, who would that be? will be my footstool. So the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ? And he says, more than you know. He says, you know those three scriptures that promise a coming king with an eternal reign who crushes his enemies. That's me. Reminded of C.S. Lewis again here. He said, Jesus is either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he is the Lord, and you have to pick one. There's no fourth option. He didn't give us the option of being just a good moral teacher. When he makes these kinds of claims, he is either making it up, or he's crazy, or maybe he is who he said he is. So now how does everyone there respond? Well, the high priest says it's game over for Jesus. They fly into a rage. They become violent. They spit on him. They cover his face and punch him. They hand him over to the soldiers, and as the soldiers receive him, they start beating him up. They're, I mean, this response is completely over the top if they think that he's just a pretender, just a lunatic or a liar. There's something spiritually dark happening here. They absolutely hate him. They can't stand to hear him speak his identity. It's as if they know it's true. But remember, this beating is no surprise to Jesus because he has certain scriptures in mind that he's fulfilling. He quoted it to the disciples at dinner. Again, Zechariah 13, 7, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Well, the sheep have already been scattered and now he's being struck. So that's the trial. Now third, the denial. Once again, we see a contrast between Jesus' faithfulness and now the failure of everyone else, and in particular Peter. So Peter had initially run away with the disciples at Gethsemane, but then he came back and followed Jesus, and he lingered at a distance, and then he came into the courtyard, and he was warming himself at the fire. I mean, those details are vivid. It's probably because, as tradition has it, Peter was Mark's main source of information. So Mark wrote this gospel account, probably with Peter's help. So this is why we have such vivid details about Peter in the Gospel of Mark, like this one. And here's Peter's epic failure. He denies Jesus three times, just as Jesus said. So the first denial is the mildest, and then they escalate from here. So verses 66 to 68 says this, As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. 
So he pretends he doesn't even know what she's talking about, and then he walks out of the area to avoid further questioning. But now the pressure comes a second time. She sees him again, and then she announces to everyone that Peter is surely one of them. And then he denies it again. So the third time comes, and he's firmer than ever. Verse 41 says he invokes a curse on himself and swears he has no idea who this man even is. And then the rooster crows the second time. Just as Jesus said, three denials before two rooster crows. And he remembers, and look at the last line of the chapter. He broke down and wept. You could picture him telling Mark what happened, can't you? Recounting this story, explaining what it was like from his perspective in the courtyard there, interacting with that girl, warming his hands, invoking a curse on himself, and then weeping, just breaking down in tears. It's another bit of evidence that this isn't made up, by the way. In the Christian movement, why would they put one of their greatest leaders in such a light, in this pathetic scene? But because the grace of Jesus is true, Peter can admit all of this. He knows he's under grace. The point isn't that we're so great. It's that Jesus' grace is greater. And so Peter exposes his failure for centuries of humanity to know to show Jesus' grace. Much like John the Baptist, right? He must increase, I must decrease. Just even as a brief side note to leaders, let's not be afraid to express our weaknesses and failures to people. If we believe the gospel, then the point is not how strong we are, but how gracious he is. Christians in general, but especially Christian leaders who can tend to pull back from this, should be pace setters in humility, like Peter right here. They should acknowledge weakness and failure, inviting others to feel safe to receive the same grace they have. All right, now how do we respond to all this? Well, let's reflect on three people in the story. First, look at Jesus. Look especially at his faithfulness and his, we could say, sympathy, or his sympathy being cultivated here. Here's what I mean. So look at his faithfulness. It's singular in contrast to everyone else. Judas betrays him. His friends run away from him. These people are falsely accusing him. Leaders unjustly condemn him. The soldiers beat him. Peter denies him. He's in the midst of a hurricane of sin, and yet there he is, steadfast and true. Remember Jesus' faithfulness in the midst of our faithful, unfaithful world. There's no one whom we would rather follow. And look at how he's cultivating sympathy here. Do you ever wonder why Jesus had to go through all of this? I don't mean the cross. We know why he went to the cross. But why was it not just the cross, but all this string of suffering added on its way? Do you ever wonder that? There's a lot of reasons for that. His sufferings, he was a man of sorrows. It wasn't just the cross, but he, he endured sufferings through his, his existence as a, as a, human, as a man um, when he was with us and all the way to the cross. But I was asking myself this question this week. Why all of this? Why betrayal? Why do you have to experience that? Why did he have to experience abandonment and false accusation and unjust condemnation and mockery and beating? Why couldn't he just go to the cross and get it over with? Well, there's reasons. Here's one of them. Jesus experienced this in order 
to be able to sympathize with you very personally as you go through these realities. He did this so that he could know what it's like experientially so that he could sympathize with you. This is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 to 16. It says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, right, in light of this, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You and I have times of need. You and I. I mean, what would it be like if every human being could know that in the midst of all the trials, all the troubles, all the hardships of life, there is a God in heaven who knows what it's like, who willingly experienced it as a human being, and went through it all. And we don't just know he's there, but he did this so that as you go through those realities, you know he is with you and he is for you if you trust him as your savior. He was abandoned by his friends so that he could stand by you when you are abandoned by yours. For some of you that has happened in deeply painful ways. For others of you, you don't know what that's like, but you might. He was betrayed and stabbed in the back so that he could identify with you when you have a Judas betray you. He was falsely accused so that he could stand in solidarity with you in the midst of false accusations against you. I wonder how many prisoners were wrongly accused and are right now in their prison cell, and they need to know there is a God in heaven who knows and who will bring justice. But even before that, he sympathizes. He had rumors swirling around him so that you can know he understands when that happens to you. The Apostle Paul experienced this. He was a prisoner toward the end of his life. And for what reason? Certainly nothing just. It was because he's faithful to talk about Jesus. And then he was abandoned by his friends. He said that when he had to make one of his defenses, so these public defenses, somewhat similar to the trial Jesus is going through here, an official trial like this, when he had to do that, he said all his friends left him. No one stuck with him. And then he would soon hear the verdict over his life that would condemn him to death unjustly. That's the Apostle Paul. Do you know what he said? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 to, or 16 to 17, these are some of the last words we have of the Apostle Paul. He said, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. One of my favorite sentences in the Bible is next. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. I encourage you to take that verse and meditate on it and memorize it and have it ready. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Not a Lord who has no idea what that's like. Not a Lord who understands but keeps his distance. 
Not a Lord who draws near and understands, but can't do a thing about it for you. No, a Lord who knows, who draws near, and who strengthens you. So you may be experiencing these things in the future, but here's what we see in Mark chapter 14 here. We see Jesus mocked and wrongly accused by a corrupt high priest so that he can be our sympathetic high priest. So, you may be abandoned by friends. You may feel it now. It may come for you in the future. You may be betrayed by a close friend. You may be mocked at your workplace. Rumors may swirl around you in a season of darkness and craziness and confusion. It may happen in your class you're in high school or college or middle school, it may happen in your workplace, wherever you are, with coworkers around, and trust is broken, it may happen in your neighborhood, rumors swirling about you and what kind of neighbor you are, it's not even true, they slander you. Have you experienced any of those things already? I have. I know you have. So never forget, Jesus knows. He sees and he understands, and he's not aloof. He can stand by you and strengthen you. It's why he came, to be a sympathetic high priest. So look at Jesus. Now second, let's look at Peter. And let's look at his failure, but also his restoration. So his failure here, and he loves Jesus. And yet he runs away. And then he came back pretty quickly. And he's following Jesus again, but from a distance. He's at a distance because he's a coward, but he's there because he loves him. And then he fails epically. But look at his restoration. We see the beginning of his restoration with his tears. He breaks down and cries. He's conflicted all the way through. But he won't be lost forever. Jesus seems to have a special compassion for Peter in light of this. And just flip ahead to a couple pages to the resurrection account. Mark 16, verse 7. So the women come to the empty tomb and an angel has instructions to pass along to them, to the disciples. And the angel says, go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Why add Peter? Why not just tell his disciples? Of course Peter's included, right? I think it's to make it clear that to Peter, that he's welcome. He is still a disciple, and Jesus wants to see him soon. And then when Jesus shows up, the Gospel of John says he shows up, and he says, peace to you, to his disciples. Then he has a process of restoring Peter as well. What made the difference? I mean, we know that Peter became a bold and faithful leader in the early church, courageous, like we do not see him here. What happened? Well, Luke tells us something that Jesus said to Peter earlier that night, just hours before this moment. He said to Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again to strengthen your brothers. Okay, so Peter was restored because Jesus prayed for him, and there's a question that might be on your mind at this point. What about Judas? You wonder that? What happened to him? How is he different than Peter? It's a tragic contrast. 
Judas and Peter were on two very different paths. Judas's betrayal was premeditated, and it was treacherous. Peter's denial was a moment of failure. Jesus said that it would be better for Judas, the one who betrays him, to have not even been born. But he said he prayed to restore Peter. Judas, we learn from the Gospel of John, was actually a thief all along. He was the treasurer, and he was taking money all through Jesus' ministry, stealing from those men and women, perhaps young people as well, or contributing. Peter, though, is sometimes obnoxious, but he loves Christ. And most importantly for understanding what's happening here, Judas never repented. As far as we know, Peter immediately wept bitterly, He remained with the disciples, he was restored, and he persevered in the faith. This is the difference that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So, Judas' story is a warning, but Peter's story gives us hope because it shows that Jesus offers a double cure for the sickness of sin. The double cure is both forgiveness and restoration. Justification, right, being declared righteous, and sanctification, a renewal and restoration and holiness. He forgives our sins and He transforms our hearts. So finally, we've seen Jesus and Peter in the story. So the last person we want to see is you. Where are you in this story? Are you like the leaders who irrationally are set against Jesus? If that's you, I encourage you to take another look at the real Jesus. Repent of your rejection of Him and trust Him. Or are you like Judas? Have you read the Bible, heard hundreds of sermons, led small groups, and yet you have not decisively settled it that Jesus is your Savior and King? You've lived His religion but you've not known Him. You feel bad when you're caught for sin and you spend a lot of time trying to hide it, but you don't weep for the personal offense that it is against Christ. If that's you, don't despair. You're here. He has you here, so repent and trust Him. Or are you like Peter? You have failed Jesus. If that's so, then go to Him for this double cure. Receive His forgiveness and receive His renewal by the Spirit, your failure does not mean He's benching you for the rest of your life. Look what happened to Peter, just a bold lion of a Christian the rest of his life. The Lord may have some great purpose for you. Maybe not great by the world's standards, and maybe no one will know about it, but a purpose to strengthen and encourage others and bear witness to Jesus. That path begins with repentance and faith. And maybe we're somewhere else in this story as well. If you're trusting in Christ, you find out that as you look at Jesus doing all of these things, you are on His heart. That's where you are. He was doing all of this for His people, not as an abstract idea. You're not an abstraction to Him. You very personally have been on His heart and mind from eternity past, and He came to endure these things for you so He could stand by you and strengthen you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your great mercy.
Thank you for sending Jesus to be a sympathetic high priest. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all that you went through with the betrayals, the abandonment, the physical abuse, the false accusation, the slander, the rumors, the unjust condemnation, all of it for us. So we thank you and praise you for your faithfulness through suffering to be our faithful and sympathetic high priest. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.